Church, let's get stuck into the Word. I'll give you just a moment to grab a Bible. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 2 this morning. Matthew chapter 2. It's Matthew's birth narrative. You'll find the birth narratives in both uh, Luke and in Matthew. Matthew. Matthew's Gospel talks about the visit of the Magi. If you haven't got, a, uh, if you haven't got it on your phone, you might want to grab a hard copy up the back. I'm going to be reading all of, of Matthew uh, chapter 2 this morning. Uh, all of uh, Matthew, we've been actually working our way through Matthew in 2023. We're going uh, sort of back towards the start of, of his, his gospel. You see, right from the outset, Matthew is very keen for you to know, very keen for his listeners, for his readers to know that, that, uh, that Jesus uh, is, is the long-awaited Messiah. Matthew goes to great pains, remember he's speaking to a Jewish audience, to say that Jesus of Nazareth, is the one that has long been taught about, told about, foretold by the prophets of old. All the prophecies come together in this, uh, this baby born in, in Bethlehem. He begins his gospel in chapter 1 with a genealogy showing that Jesus is indeed from the seed of Abraham, from the tribe of Judah, a descendant of King David. And he tells us that he was born of a virgin, thus fulfilling prophecy uh, there. And here in, in chapter 2, he goes on to say how Jesus fulfills even more prophecies, telling us about how uh, Jesus will be born in, in Bethlehem. Uh, now, these events don't happen. Uh, we, we think of these events as kind of a Christmas story. They're not really. Uh, these events happen sometime after that first Christmas night in Bethlehem. We know this because the wise men, the Magi, visited Mary and Joseph and the baby Jesus while they were back in their house. So the scholars think these events actually happen weeks, months, even up to a couple of years after Jesus' birth. And by the way, that song we sing, We Three Kings of Orient Are, you know that one? None of that is right. Every single word of that is wrong, right? There wasn't three of them. There was almost certainly a large traveling caravan. The scripture never mentions three. They just we know that they bring gold, frankincense, and myrrh. That's where we get the three from, but... Almost certainly a large traveling caravan. It's how they did it, was security. They traveled in large numbers. They weren't kings, they were wise men, magi, stargazers, astronomers, perhaps even astrologers. It would have been court officials, learned men, but not kings. And they weren't from the Orient, at least not as we sort of think of the Orient these days, from the Middle East, probably from around modern-day Iraq or Iran. They were probably uh, the Persians. Uh, great to have some Persian believers with us this morning. Praise God. Got some Persian believers with us here today. That's where these wise men were probably, were probably from. And what this chapter clearly illustrates is there are a vast chasm between our earthly notions of kingship and the kingdom that Jesus comes to bring. And, and running through it all, being looking at as we go through Matthew chapter 2 here this morning, there's an undercurrent through it all of Earth's response to God's heavenly plan. God's plan is that he loves us so much that he sent his only son, that whoever believes in him may not perish but have eternal life. And what is Earth's response? Well, Matthew's going to go through some of it. Spoiler alert, it's not good. <laughs> it's not good. Our response to this great news is is not good. In Jesus, abundant life is to be found. Abundant, eternal resurrection life is to be found. He's the cure for all the world's ills, all the brokenness, the disease and sickness and dysfunctionality, but sometimes we just don't want to be healed. We'd rather remain in our sin, remain 
in our brokenness. So straight off the bat, Matthew's keen to show us here that although foreigners, Gentiles from pagan land are bowing down and worshipping, his own people reject him. Let's get into Matthew chapter 2, verses, we'll read all of it, 1 through to 23. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Hearing Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all of Jerusalem with him. He called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law. He asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied. For this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way. And the star that they had seen rose and went ahead of them, but stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. Everybody say overjoyed. On coming to the house... They saw the child and his mother Mary. They bowed down and worshipped. They opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up! Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod had realized that he'd been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and gave the order to kill all the boys of Bethlehem and its vicinity that were two years old and under in accordance with the time that he'd learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and, and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But then he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, and he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee and went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, that he would be called a Nazarene. Church, let's pray. Our loving Heavenly Father, we submit ourselves to your rule in this moment. Come and have your way. Open our eyes to fresh truths in this story. We've heard it many times before, Father. We pray that you'll help us to see something new. Challenge us. Help us to see something fresh. May my words be your words. May I decrease, you increase in all that is said. And in all that is heard. And all the people said, 
Well, friends, I'm sure you're familiar, really, with the concept that insecure people are very easily threatened. You know, those sort of people who put on a big song and dance, those people that put on a very bright front, who put on a a very sort of, give off the impression that they've got it all together, but underneath you sense they're actually very insecure. Does anyone know someone like that? King Herod, Herod the Great, was one of those sorts of, of people. He's the first of our two great kings in this story. You see, King Herod, he was indeed great. He was, a, he was in fact, by worldly terms, a great ruler, a great builder. You can go visit the ruins of the, some of the places that he built. He was indeed a very powerful king. He was called King of the Jews, given the title King of the Jews by the, by the Romans because his father had actually helped uh, Julius Caesar conquer that part of the world, which the Romans named Palestine, by the way, as a way of mocking the Jews, of saying, you are a, a conquered people, we're going to rename your land Palestine. And so as a consequence, he inherited his father's throne, he inherited his title king of the Jews, but in actual fact, he wasn't even Jewish. He was actually uh, an, an Edomite. And so uh, Herod, uh, the, the great, different Herod, by the way, from the Herod, his son, Herod Antipas that was ruling when Jesus was crucified. I know it's confusing, different Herods. We're talking about the big dog here, Herod the Great, quite a substantial ruler, quite a substantial figure in history. He held to his power very tightly, guarded it jealously. He wasn't actually a Jew and therefore was always afraid of usurpers coming and taking his power. We know that from other historians such as Josephus, he had no hesitation in killing anyone that threatened his rule. Up to 300 of his own advisors, military leaders, were put to death lest they take his throne. Not only that, we know that he would put his own family members to death. We know that he killed his in-laws. Indeed, he killed his own wife, one of his own wives, lest she became a threat. And not only that, he killed two or three of his own sons, lest they grow up and become a challenge to him. There was a saying that it was better to be Herod's pig than to be his son. In the Jewish community, that's saying something. Sarch is the, the man who was so incredibly fearful and insecure about who he was and about his own rule, was so intent on gaining power and hanging on to it at all costs. This is the first king that we are, that we are dealing with here. A, a terrible despot, cruel, paranoid. Desperate to hang on to power. Desperate to have his own way no matter what. So, when the Magi famously come, and look, this isn't really a Christmas story. Uh, The 6th of January traditionally is Epiphany when this happens. This is why I thought I'd be talking about this story today. Um, But when the Magi arrive, when these wise men arrive, he's obviously very disturbed. He's obviously very upset when they come and say, where's the one that's born king of the Jews? He doesn't like the sound of this one little bit, so he hatches a plan. He, uh, he turns to, his, he turns to his, his wise men, turns to his, his advisors, turns to, he turns to his scribes, the teachers of the law. Now, as opposed to the wise men in this story, these are the very foolish men in this story. So the, these teachers of the law, these scribes, they were the elite of Jewish society. They were the educated ones. They were the big guns. They were the legal big guns, the legal minds, the theological minds, right? These were the sort of a cross between, you know, priests and lawyers and politicians and, 
and rulers, only the very best young males, of course, ever got educated to this sort of a level. These guys were the ones who knew the prophecies of old. So Herod is right to turn to them. He asks, where is the one to be, where is the Messiah to be born? They know the answer. They say, well, Bethlehem. A little sort of town just outside of Jerusalem, not far from Jerusalem. In fact, a suburb of Jerusalem these days, not very far at all. What is amazing about these scribes, these teachers of the law, is that they can't even be bothered to go and check out the claim for themselves. Despite generations and generations of Jews looking for the Messiah, waiting for the Messiah, and now there's a new empire that is now ruling them. When, Lord, how long? They get a heads up from these traveling stargazers, and they still can't even be bothered taking the short trip down to Jerusalem to check it out for themselves. The Messiah, after generation and generation, has been born right under their nose, and they can't even be bothered to put themselves out to go and check out the claim for themselves. Talk, talk about an opportunity missed. Talk about an opportunity missed. This is a classic example of how Jesus comes and upsets the apple cart. Jesus actually provokes hostility in people's hearts and minds. Jesus here has provoked hostility in the heart of, of Herod, indifference in the heart of the teachers of the law and and, and, and the scribes, Jesus will often provoke hostility in the hearts and the minds of anyone that wishes to be their own sovereign. You don't need to be a mighty tyrant like Herod the Great. Each one of us, I think, has a little Herod living in each of us, if we're honest with ourselves. Each of us wants to be our own ruler, our own king or queen. Each of us, any person that wants to be lord of the manor or queen of the castle of our own lives. Any Seinfeld fans among us? Lord of the manor, queen of the castle. Anyone that wants to be the boss of their own lives. Anyone that wants to say, I'll make the rules for me. Right? Particularly in this day and age, as we heard last week, where it's like, you do you. You make the rules for you. You are your own boss. You are your own king or queen. You are, in effect, your own God. Anyone that thinks like that, Jesus will be an affront. He will be a threat. And Herod, to his credit, actually realizes this. There's credit where it's due. Herod kind of gets this. Herod realizes that this, that this coming king is actually not going to just be a mere spiritual guru. So this is sort of a mental sort of, oh, yes, I like just this sort of nice teacher. No, this is a king that's going to have real world impact. Jesus said that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. But Herod rightly realizes that this Jesus, this Messiah is coming to upend things, to upend earthly powers and principalities. Each one of us, I think, has a little bit of resentment. Even those of us that have surrendered our life to Christ many, many years ago, I think we still carry around, I know I do, a little bit of a resentment that rears its ugly head every once in a while about the fact that I've sort of needed to surrender to Christ because really Pete Chapman wants to be in charge of Pete Chapman and I think if we're honest, we all kind of want ourselves to be in charge as well. There's a little Herod inside all of us. It, it will cause a little bit of conflict. Each day we need to wake up and surrender afresh to Christ. I came across a pithy little phrase that, talking about how Jesus actually does impact in the real world, not just an intellectual thought exercise, not just for an hour on Sunday, but actually should impact our lives. It's no king but Christ. No king but Christ. We don't owe our allegiance to any 
earthly king or any earthly government ultimately, but to Christ. We don't even, it's not even ourselves. We, we must surrender, hand over the reins, the keys to our lives, even with ourselves. So Herod is, in a sense, right to feel threatened. That's the sort of person we're dealing with. But if we're honest, I think the first little takeaway is to acknowledge the little Herod that is kind of residing in each of us, waiting to, to rear its ugly head. So Herod dispatches a plan uh, to, to dispatch this, this, uh, this, this, young, uh, this young usurper. Uh, he's keen to, to, do away, uh, to do away with the, with the threat, consults these teachers of the law who turn out to be foolish. So our first little challenge is, who are you like? Are you like these, these teachers of the law, these highly educated scribes? Looking around this morning, I know many of us have spent many years coming to church. We might know it all up here, but are we really willing to put ourselves out for Jesus? Are we going to be like these foolish teachers of the law that couldn't even be bothered being moved by Jesus? Or are we like, well, these, these wise men? who have travelled hundreds of miles, probably from modern-day Iran or, or, or from Iraq. Now, their, their response is very different in contrast to these teachers of the law and these scribes. Uh, they, what do they do? Well, we read about it, I think it's at verse 10 or 11. They, they are overjoyed. They find the Christ child and they are overjoyed. Are you overjoyed at finding Jesus in your life? Is it evident I know it's a challenge for me to remain, to make sure that the, the world sees that I am overjoyed, that I have found Christ, that I am in Christ. Not only that, we find out that they not only find him, they bow down and they worship him. Complete reverence, complete and utter devotion. Bear in mind, these are foreign foreigners, these are pagans, these are, these are, these are Gentiles. Maybe, just maybe, some scholars think sort of descendants from, from Daniel, from when he was in Babylon. Uh, he was a very senior advisor. Maybe the, the Jewish teachings have continued and, and that's how these wise men found out about this Jewish Messiah that, it was, a, that, was, about to, that was about to be born. They, they bow down and they worship him. They give him everything and they bring costly gifts. They offer him sacrificial gifts. Now, whenever you entered into a king's presence, you're expected to come bearing gifts. So this in itself is symbolic of the kingship of Christ. And the gifts that they bring are truly worthy of a king. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Gold, well, these speaks for itself. The medal of kings. The fulfillment of a prophecy from Isaiah that the wealth of the nations would flow to his Messiah. Frankincense was a, an incense used by the Jewish priests. It's a, it's a testimony that Jesus being our, our great priest, our great high priest, it's a problematic word for Protestant ministers such as myself. Every once in a while, I run into Aussies that call me a priest. I always wince a little bit inside because uh, in the Protestant tradition, let me explain, uh, we don't believe that, that you need a priest. When you, meet your, when you meet your demise and you go to judgment before God, there's no point saying, you, I knew Pete Chapman from Church in the Marketplace. I'm not going to be interceding for you at that point. You need to sort it out, your relationship with God, yourself. And we have one great intermediary, one great high priest, and that is Jesus himself. Jesus is our great high priest. Minister just means servant. Jesus is the only one through which we can enter into a right relationship with God. Myrrh was a, uh, like a resin, uh, and in order to sort of release its, its fragrance, it needed to be crushed. 
He's thinking of Isaiah chapter 53. He was crushed for our iniquities. It was used as an anesthetic. It was actually offered to Jesus at his death on the cross. He refused it. It was also used in embalming dead bodies. Bit of a weird gift to give a baby, isn't it? Don't you think? (laughs) Sorry, boys. Bit of a weird gift to give a baby, isn't it? An embalming sort of resin. But right here, even at his birth, his death is in view. His atoning death, his saving death, his amazingly gracious death in order to bring us back into right relationship with Jesus is in view through these three gifts. So who are you? Are you like these foolish teachers and scribes who can't be bothered being moved at all? Or are you like these wise men who are overjoyed, bow down, worship, give costly gifts and lay at his feet? Well, an angel, of the, uh, an angel of the Lord appears to Joseph in a dream uh, and tell him, tells him to flee, verse 13, flee. Now, what's interesting here about verse 13 is that the Greek word is fugo. It's the same word from which we get our modern word fugitive. Jesus is our fugitive king. We worship a king in exile. We're told to flee, to, to go down to, to Egypt. He's a king in in exile. We don't know how long they were down there. Some of the non-canonical gospels, the Gnostic gospels that aren't historically reliable, try to fill in some of the blanks. We don't know anything about it at all. We we do know that he was, that that they fled. He was an exile. He was a fugitive uh, in in, in Egypt. But why Egypt? Would have been safer. Would have been easier to go quicker, to go back up north to Nazareth, wouldn't it? They could have gone with the Magi back east. They would have got him right out of Herod's grasp. Could have gone west to the beach to Joppa and hang out at the beach for a little bit. It's 100 kilometers from Bethlehem down down to the border of Egypt, further still to find any sort of population. We do know, however, that there was Jews living in Egypt during the time of the Maccabean Revolt. Jews fled down there in the intertestamental period. We also know that Alexander the Great, another Another great worldly king, actually being the humble sort of a person that modern day, well, ancient kings were, uh, he named a city after himself, as you do, Alexandria, and, uh, and actually, but to his credit, did actually uh, reserve a part of the city for, for Jews. So there was a Jewish population that they could have found refuge among. But really, what's going on here is that, uh, is that this is a very clearly an echo of the Exodus. If you're a good Jew, you knew that the Exodus, really the key, the key story in Jewish nation's history, was a, was a precursor, an echo, a pointing towards the coming Messiah. So he's pointing to what's going on. He's fleeing to Egypt with his father Joseph, no less. Remember, Israel fled down to Egypt before because of Joseph of Technicolor Dreamcoat fame, a dreamer who looked out for his family, protected his family, and fled down there where they became a great nation that had to escape Egypt. So the story of, of the infant Jesus fleeing with his father, Joseph, down to Egypt and then coming up again, rising, this is a clear reminder that Jewish audience would have, wouldn't have, couldn't have helped but think this is, a, this is a replaying of the Exodus. This is God saving his people. This would have been clear to any Jewish hero, but there is a twist There is a twist. This is God actually damning Israel because he's fleeing to Egypt, fleeing from a tyrant king in Israel 
the king of Israel. Israel has become like Pharaoh who sought to destroy, kill all the infant male Hebrew babies, if you remember the story. So they're fleeing to Egypt in order to escape a tyrant in Israel who has become like Pharaoh. So there is a a bit of a a twist there. But the other thing that's happening here is that it's another fulfillment of prophecy. This is another fulfillment where it says, out of Egypt I called my son. This is a prophecy from the prophet Hosea. Hosea, at this part of of his story, is indeed talking about the Exodus, right? So again, if you knew your scriptures, as a good Jew, you would know another reference to the Exodus. But Hosea himself is another wonderful, very powerful story about God's love, his indefatigable love for us, even in the face of our own unfaithfulness. Hosea was called to marry a woman by the name of Goma. That's strike one, right, fellas? Right, Goma. But things went from bad to where Goma was unfaithful. In fact, Goma ended up becoming a prostitute. Hosea remained faithful. Hosea chased after his wife, Goma, even in her unfaithfulness. She bore illegitimate children. At one point, Hosea even names one of these children, not my child. He chased her. He sought, even though she was a prostitute, he still loved her. He provided for her. And then worse came to worse. She even was sold into slavery. And Hosea redeems her. Hosea goes to his prostitute of a wife, brings her home. It is a wonderfully powerful story, a wonderfully powerful illustration of God's unfailing love for his wayward, unfaithful people. This is what God is doing in Jesus, in Jesus Christ. Herod is outraged. He's been tricked because the wise men get a, another visited by an angel and say, get out of Dodge. Herod has it in for, he's got a hatching evil plan, and they return home via another route. Now, as I was preparing this sermon, I thought, there's an entire Christmas message just in that one line there. These wise men encountered Jesus and changed their path. Have you allowed Jesus to change your path, to change your life? Have you really allowed him to change the direction of your life? I hope so. I, I, I certainly hope so. He's outraged. He orders the slaughter of all the boys in Bethlehem and in the surrounding regions uh, up to two years old. Can you imagine the, the wailing? Can you imagine the, the trauma? This is a, another fulfillment of, of prophecy. The irony here is that Herod is trying to sort of stop God's will from happening. He's trying to, to stop the prophecy of the of the infant child being born in Bethlehem. But in the, not only does he fail, he actually ends up fulfilling another prophecy, a prophecy about Rachel, Jacob's wife, mourning. Rachel was a symbolic of being the mother of Israel. Uh, she was married to Jacob with the 12 sons uh, who became the 12 tribes of Israel. Rachel is symbolic of being a, a mother. Of Israel. She's mourning for the slaughter of these sons, these babies. It's not mentioned anywhere else in history, by the way, but would have only have been a small number of boys. Bethlehem was not a big place. Maybe, maybe a couple of dozen tops. I mean, one is too many. But this was, this was an everyday sort of a thing when you lived under Herod the Great, barely even remarkable in the annals of history, sadly. Such is the rule of tyrant kings down through the ages. It's a fulfillment of of. of of prophecy, and really what this says to me with King Herod 
foolishly trying to sort of stop God's will from happening. He just enables it all the more. You can either get in alignment with God's will or you can be run over by it. God's will will be done and eventually you will need to bow the knee. Every knee will bow. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Get in alignment with his will is my plea for you today. By the way, you should also be conjuring up images, those of you who know your scriptures of the image in Revelation of the great dragon waiting to consume the coming king as he's born, as consumed, but who ultimately is, is defeated. There is, this is cosmic stuff playing out in Bethlehem during these times. Eventually Herod died. We know from other historians he died a horrible, horrible death and that in fact just before he died, he grounded up all the elders of Judea and ordered them to be put to death on the day that he died in order that there would be wailing and weeping and tears. What a horrible figure this man was. He knew that he wouldn't be missed. He knew that he wouldn't be mourned, but he wanted there to be mourning to be heard. So he rounded up all the other elders of, of, the, of the tribe of Israel and Judea and had them uh, murdered on, on the day that, that he, was, he was killed. Just a terrible, uh, terrible human being. Joseph gets word, has another angelic visitor saying, you can, it's safe to return. Those that were out to, to kill the boy, out to kill your, 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 your son, have, have, have died. Again, this is a fulfillment of prophecy, Matthew tells us. What's interesting about this prophecy is you won't find it anywhere in your Old Testament. That's what's going on there. You actually won't find Nazareth anywhere in your Old Testament. Nazareth is so insignificant. It's never mentioned once in the whole of the Hebrew Scriptures. So what's going on here? Well, there's a few theories. Uh, Hebrew was written without vowel, just the consonants, and sort of natsar. It's the same word for branch. So scholars think they know it's a, it's a, rec, it's a reference back to the, a branch coming up out of the stump of Jesse, the, the root of Jesse, Jesse being King David's father, of course. Or it could also just simply be a reference to how this king will come from a place that is, everyone sort of knew, it's a place of ill regard, a place. Could anything good come out of Nazareth? Asked the, the disciple Nathaniel. Do you remember that episode? There's a, the one has come, he's arrived, and he asked, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Sort of a bit like um, Bronte today, I suppose. And, uh, oh, look out. Just, oh, that's the crowd. They've turned against me now. <laughs> Just making sure you're listening, sir. <laughs> oh, we love all of our Bronte friends, don't we? Can anything... I don't... Well, that's why I chose it, because I knew I'd be safe. I knew you'd know that I was joking. Now, not all of us can live in Maroubra. Anyway, so we, uh, we come to this point and, 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 and we know that uh, they can return. Finally, can anything good come out of Nazareth? They return uh, home to home to, 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 to Nazareth, and and eventually, well, the rest is is history. Take your pick, any of the old prophecies; they all point to Jesus of Nazareth. God brought these two great kings, Jesus and King Herod, together at the same time, same place in history. What is He trying to teach us? I wonder. Both Jesus and Herod the Great were great kingdom builders, but their strategies were diametrically opposed. Herod was wholly devoted to building his own kingdom, his own power, his own prestige, of course. He was willing to sacrifice other people 
in order to do it. He wouldn't have sacrificed anyone in order to keep hold of power. He spared no effort to impress the world, to show the world how great and mighty he was. Jesus, in contrast, well, he's wholly devoted to building God's kingdom, wasn't he? His heavenly Father's kingdom. Jesus, the Messiah, the King of kings, sacrificed himself in order to build his heavenly Father's kingdom and to allow you and I to enter in. Praise God. Jesus chose to lose his life in order that you might find it. Praise God. He had none of the earthly power of kings and queens, but his heavenly power is beyond comprehension. Remember too, 1 Corinthians says, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He's chosen the weak things to shame the strong. This is an upside-down kingdom, people. God chooses a virgin from Nazareth. He chooses the prostitute, the fugitive, and turns the world upside down. Our God came in glorious humility, friends. He lived a life of rejection so that you would be accepted. He was forsaken so that you never need feel forsaken. doesn't matter where you come from, where you live, what you do. All that matters is what happens when Jesus Christ gets hold of you. Will you submit to his rule? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Only the best thing ever, friends. Salvation, eternal life. Ultimately, of course, Herod's earthly glory came to nothing, didn't it? He died like we all do, and his kingdom was handed on to somebody else. He died, returned to dust. He is remembered as a paranoid tyrant, a killer of infants. Jesus' legacy, however, lives on in the hearts of millions of people around the world this day. His followers study his words, seek to follow his example of humble, selfless, self-sacrificial love and life. What he's done for his kingdom has lasting value as opposed to the fleeting honour that we seek for ourselves out in the world. Can I encourage you friends to ask yourself the question this day, which legacy will be yours? Which king will you choose to follow? Can I encourage you this day, this year, make 2024 the year, when you commit afresh, when you commit to following Jesus Christ as King of kings, Lord of lords, Lord of your life, make him your king, your Lord, your saviour today. Amen? Let's pray as the band comes up and leads us into communion this morning. Loving Heavenly Father, we commit ourselves afresh to worshipping Jesus is our King, King of kings and Lord of lords, the one who brings life. We turn aside from seeking earthly glory, earthly prestige and power. We put to death once more that selfishness that rises up within us, seeking our own ways, our own agendas that we know does not lead to life. Help us this year, we pray, to live in complete surrender to Christ the King. In his name we pray. Amen.